Well, welcome back. This is Christian. And this is Sarah, accompanied by Blue the Girl Dog. And today is the continuation of a two-part subset of the series on resurrection and the political. We're joined again this week by our special guest, Michelle Steinke. We invite you to continue going deeper into the conversation about what does the resurrection invite to and from us as a resurrection people in terms of how we live and organize our lives in the polis, meaning our public lives, our political lives, and who are we called to be in view of the resurrection. Join the conversation as we jump in. Jesus being crucified and rising again uh, becomes a profound act of God's solidarity and God's bearing witness to that no one should have to get crucified, right? That those systems that seek to kill and destroy, that those are the powers and principalities. And Jesus wants to overthrow those things and wants us all to live. Like in this kingdom, there's enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and that all of us just need to find a way to truly be reborn in the being human together. And so, um, you know, that's been a big part of my story. And I think, uh, both of you have heard me talk probably ad nauseum at length about the, the probably most central experience of my life where resurrection became the thing that shaped me, which is the time that I spent in El Salvador. And um, I went down there as a part of a, a it was a theology class um, in which it was a um, immersive experience where we were going down for the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Oscar Romero. And we spent time learning about the history and the theology and culture, uh, reading theologians, et cetera, uh, from El Salvador. And I think, you know, one early moment for me was a sense of, I, you know, was born in the eighties and the civil war was happening in El Salvador. I had no idea there even had been a civil war in El Salvador until I was literally in this class. Right. And I was like, what, there was a civil war and like it happened and went. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I was alive then. And I had no idea, right? That was really hard. That was really haunting. I felt like ashamed. Like, how did I not know this? Um, you know, and then you find out like what was going on in the time in the country is that there's like eight families who have control of all the wealth. And like people are like don't have food to eat. And there are these priests who have all been, they've gone through their education in Europe after World War II so they're reading and wrestling with these other, you know, Christian thinkers who are saying, does the cross have anything to say in view of peoples who are getting slaughtered or, you know, view of people suffering? And they're saying, yes, it has to. The gospel has to say something about this. And so they come into these parishes and these communities where people are like really suffering and they're like, no more. Like this can't happen. And, and of course, this is super complicated because what's also happening is like the global war between the West and Russia, the USSR, and will Marxism or will capitalism win the day? And so these sorts of these sorts of conversations are influencing the gospel conversation too, right? They're in in like not nice dialogue, they're in like, let's, you know, try to vanquish each other from the face of the earth and any other humans we have to. Yeah. And, and so this is like super complicated and all this stuff is happening. And yet you have these like priests who are literally like my, my parishioners are dying. I think Jesus cares. Mm -hmm. And so Oscar Romero enters the scene. Um, he was selected to be the archbishop of El Salvador because he was a super moderate dude. 
right? He's very like, hey, you know, like, let's all just be happy and not say anything to rock the boat. He was mm-hmm. definitely in the, in the be a good boy, right? He mm-hmm. wanted to be good. And, and he has this like profound experience of conversion where he like senses God's spirit be like, Romero, like, I'm calling out to you. It's like a, it's like a Saul on the road, right? He's like, you're persecuting me. Like, what are you doing? And he starts then in his homilies and in his radio addresses being really prophetic and saying, we have to stop this. We can't do this. This is not the gospel. And of course, this isn't received super well. Like, because right, when you think you get one person, you got another person it's not really going to go over well. He's getting a lot of death threats and he actually gets assassinated during mass when he holds up, he's literally holding up the body in and the blood of Christ, and he gets he's gets killed. So Romero is literally serving communion. He's holding up the body and blood of Christ, and then um, an assassin pulls up in front of the um, chapel where he's serving, and shoots him with an automatic rifle and kills him. And he's his blood is commingled with the body and blood of Christ, spilled everywhere in the crowd. I'm just like, oh my goodness, what do I do with this? And you know, before he died, he said something to the effect, well, he actually said this. He said, <laughs> it's just something to the effect, meaning it was in Spanish and I'm translating <laughs> it. Um, if they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadoran people. And, you know, before I went to El Salvador, I was like, what does that even mean? I don't even understand what that means. Like, I get Jesus and resurrection, and but what is this? Like, is he cocky? Like, I don't get it. And then I was there and I, you know, heard more of the story. I'm learning more about the people. And then I go to the march to, uh, to celebrate the 25th assassination. Still thinking this is weird. And all of a sudden I'm there and I'm walking amongst a crowd of 200,000 people. And they're chanting and they're, they're just joyous. And I look around and I have one of those for me, which is like a total Holy Spirit moment where I, like my skin, you know, like bubbles up with um, goosebumps and, and I just feel this whoosh. And I, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. I get it. This is actually the point. This is the power of resurrection. Like this is the power of Jesus at work in the world is that, when we open ourselves to the resurrected Christ, we open ourselves to a new way of being human together that bears witness to that the powers of death, that they don't win and that God's here to counter them. And if only we will allow ourselves to do that dying to self work, to let ourselves join with God and the rest of God's creation that we get to bear witness to resurrection life in its truest and most full sense. And so for me, that's, I think, the work that God is about, that God is neither a Republican or a Democrat, um, but God's kingdom is a place where everyone gets to live into the fullness of being made an image of God, where creation groans and longs for freedom and where the lion and the lamb sit down together where those divisions get torn down and we all get to like join in one table fellowship with the God of all creation and with one another. And that to me is the work 
And we do that imperfectly and it's complicated and knowing how to do that in our partisan world and time, man, that's real. But like, I think that I want that to be our aim is to let that question trouble us and then to seek to join God. Yeah, I just I think um, this is really helpful, too, because um, at being a former professor and you, you know, you're in the academy as well, Sarah, and you know, so that like sometimes we kind of can function like, yeah, we just got into this because we started, you know, um, because we started reading books. I'm about to contradict myself totally. Just a second here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you read a book, everybody. Yeah, I read a book. <laughs> but, but usually this stuff really is kind of rooted in life experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, you were mentioning some of the experiences that were important to you. Like for me, I think one of the very earliest experiences that um, made me have to begin to take seriously the political nature of the gospel was in college I, I that's really where i met jesus in college and i read a book <laughs> you read a book in, everybody in the context of a class um it was on sort of like american religion you know in the modern age or something like that and um taught by mr sopper and and the so the first theology book i ever read was James Cone's God of the Oppressed. Oh my goodness, wow. And the reason why it's important for me to name that book is that I became a Christian in the context of Southern Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I later learned that there's a whole history of anti-racism on one side of my family, but on other sides of my family, like mm-hmm. there's just sort of residual racism. Um, that would come up from time to time. Um, I'm not saying that that's the case with everyone in my family, but there were certain assumptions that were said by certain members or whatever, and it just was there. And I remember becoming a Christian and having this moment of belief, and this is sort of the old resurrection story, like, oh, everything's fine now. I got my Jesus pill, and boom. And I, I wound up in a, uh, having a friendship with several students, African-American students, mm-hmm. who were members of the Kojic Church, which is the Church of God in Christ, which is the Black Pentecostal mm-hmm. tradition. And, um, and I'm, at the same time, I'm in class. I'm taking this class. I'm reading this book. I'm taking a class on African history. And, and one of the things that you discover when you read Cone is that things are not all right. Mm-hmm. And not only are they not all right, in the larger country because of the racial structures, they are not all right in the church. Mm-hmm. And you can go through a good portion of your life not really realizing or being cognizant of, or just simply asking, why is it that only white Christians worship with white Christians? And why are we not more integrated, et cetera? What's wrong there? Mm-hmm. And so that book pushed me, I think, to start having to think about mm-hmm. um, the the what does the gospel have to say to any of these things Mm -hmm. these realities and then of course eventually when you go into the academic world you really start to uh you know kind of uh drill down and you find out well the gospel has a lot to say Mm -hmm. about those things but the gospel was also used to justify those things Mm -hmm. you know and so going through the process of that has Mm -hmm. been 
painful, but also helpful and has helped me to, you know, in terms of thinking about this question. But, but so that's my kind of story um, in terms of what I encountered um, personally. What about you, Sarah? Like you had a pretty interesting story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, my, mm-hmm, it's just about that. Like, I'm like, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> sorry, everyone. I won't take up all of that time. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think I, I want to go back actually back though, pretty far, which is, you know, those of you who know me have heard me say that for me, like faith became animated for me because of John 3:16. Like, right. I'm a little girl who cried because she wanted to love Jesus because Jesus loved her and she didn't know how to love God back. Right. And, and so I'm like the kid who's, who's crying when my best friends who are sisters are saying, I hate you because I'm like, Jesus made everybody and Jesus loves everybody. And when you say, I hate you, that means you hate Jesus. Right. So like these ethical impulses were very present in five-year-old Sarah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and so, but I, I think this sense, you know, at the developmental level that I was at of that Christian faith had something to do with human relationships and how we ordered our lives together. And I think, you know, then a couple other elements or threads of my own story are, are this like weird and um, dissonant in many ways experience of growing up as a poor kid on welfare in Section 8 housing in the 1980s, while also being an evangelical um, growing up in churches where every single adult I know is a Republican, um, everyone, you know, and this is when folks will be like, you shouldn't be political. I'm like, I was like, listen, I was tutored to be political from like the time I got to church, right? I, I was told that to follow Jesus meant we were supposed to care about certain things. I still think that. I still think that the gospel has something to say for the whole of our lives and for human relationships and how we structure these things together. And so, I, I mean, I think part of what happened in my own story was a deep recognition that like the, the, um, deep equating of my faith and my community's faith with one political party lacked. It, it was found wanting. And it didn't actually have space for the gospel in whole. There's parts of the gospel represented, but that, that it wasn't synonymous and that there were too many impulses to wed those things too closely together. And I, I just, I, you know, I think what happened then is then I, I start reading other people who are are wrestling with these. You read a questions. book. I read a book too once, um, and are wrestling with these sorts of questions. And and I think particularly for me, the the most pivotal, well, not the most, but the one of the two most pivotal streams inside of theology has been Christian theologians uh, who were. German who were wrestling after the Shoah and the Holocaust happened to say basically how can we even claim the name of Christ in view of Christianity being complicit in the slaughter of millions of people yeah. and and one of the things in reading their work is that central to them is the, this belief that the cross is supposed to stand in critique of any system of any government of any way of being in human relationship that denies the image of God in others, that crucifies people, that, you know, is willing to sacrifice them in view of like the need for power and empire. And all of a sudden I'm like, yes, right? Like, cause that's actually what I thought the whole time is like Jesus critiques stuff and, and invites us and challenges us to be different kinds of people. And so, um, so I'd say in many ways, my own story is a story 
of experiencing what it means, like you were saying, Michelle, to, huh, I just felt a lot of emotion about that, to encounter the ways that I'm complicit and the ways that I've been part of harming others, the ways that my identities or where I live or, you know, these things are part of things I don't even want to be a part of. It's kind of that whole, like, you know, Lord, forgive me the, like, could I want to do, I can't do. And uh, thank you, Paul. I resonate with that. And, and so it's this sense of like having to come and get reborn and get reborn again and again and experiencing resurrection in those sorts of ways to say like, like this is not a one and done process. Like my own formation and transformation as a, a white, you know, middle-class woman in the United States at this particular moment, Jesus is calling me to certain things. And it's not to a particular partisan platform and whole or anything. It is to, more deeply to Jesus. It's more deeply to the kingdom of God and what that means in terms of what has been God's perennial calls care for the poor and the widow and the orphan, a sense that, you know, we are all image bearers of God and that has to be honored, a sense that God's goodness is actually for all the people, um, a sense that God is in the business of restoration and reconciliation between people, that these divisions of insider and outsider get demolished in the gospel and we're supposed to be able to live a different kind of way together. And so blah, 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 blah. Like, welcome, beloved. <laughs> welcome, beloved. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how many people listening uh, did the Lenten devotional from Walter Brueggemann, um, a way other than our own. But I really appreciated um, this book and doing it over Lent, and especially during COVID, it was um, it spoke a lot to me. And the Monday of Holy Week, um, he said something that really has stuck with me uh, about what what the resurrection meant. Um, he said, uh, Jesus isn't crucified because of some theory of atonement. He's crucified because the empire cannot tolerate such a transformative, subversive force set loose in the world. And I think about that when you share the story of Oscar Romero, I think about um, that I feel like part of my responsibility as someone who says that I follow Jesus is to participate in the resistance to things that are comfortable for me that bring discomfort for other people. And um, that it's a, it's a subversive um, kind of action. And, um, you know, it's, it's made me go into uncomfortable places and um, face kind of uncomfortable uh, truths that I participate in and I benefit from, um, but it's also brought me this new life, you know, like um, the, the opportunity to stand in solidarity with people, the opportunity to, um, to say, and it, I mean, it's like simple stuff, like uh, two years ago this spring, you know, like I'm reading about kids being put in cages down at our border and, inside i'm like there's nothing i can do you have to do something there's nothing i can do you have to do something You're like what can i do and so i kind of shoot this email out to the universe um and somebody answers back and says you know we're having a vigil every um second tuesday of the month at the whipple federal building 
Um, that's turned into me being on the board of an immigration um, coalition that is fighting the injustice that's happening at the Whipple building. It's turned into learning more about the sacred land that the federal building that is housing ICE, um, you know, th that it's stolen land from native people and that we are living in a broken treaty society right now. And I mean, so all of these things and I'm like, wow, you know, like there's so much injustice and there's so much wrong and look at all these people who are coming and saying, no, not on our watch. Like, and I, and I get to participate in that. And, um, and just some of the people who I've met and, um, and learned from has been life-giving. And uh, so that's, you know, it's kind of like, okay, Jesus, like, yeah, I want to follow you. I want, I would, I, I always kind of think of my, like um, my two apostles, disciples that I resonate with are, um, Peter and uh, Judas, like one of them is like so overwhelmed that I just want to quit. Like I thought that you were going to do something different, Jesus, and it's just too much. And I, I just, I can't do it anymore. And the other one is like, oh, Jesus, I see where you're going. I'll go first, you know, like I'll, I'll go like cut off his ear. And, and Jesus is like, <laughs> no, actually both of you, like, I just, I just want you to follow me and I will, sh I'll, I'll just reveal it to you. I'll show you. And, um, man, I wish it didn't take so long and didn't, wasn't so unjust for so many people. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're talking about the, the divisions of, um, church on Sunday mornings between ethnic, um, you know, racial lines in our country. They, you know, call it the most divisive hour of the week. And, uh, you know, it gives me a lot of hope to think that a people who were brought here, maybe hope's the wrong word, um, Jesus means something. If the people who were brought here forcibly, um, taken away, separated from their families, um, decimated, you know, another continent, to do it and brought here and enslaved, um, they fell in love with Jesus. They fell in love with the, the person who the slave owner tried to kind of hold over them. Um, that means Jesus, like, he, he's got it, you know, like the, all I have to do is follow him. And um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, the, the, as both of you were sharing, um, and uh, I think we were kind of saying off, uh, off microphone, like how hard it is to, um, when you're thinking about something and you've been thinking about it for so long, mm -hmm. how do you succinctly mm -hmm. state it? And I think, uh, but I think we kind of captured at least the way that we had hoped that this conversation was going to go, which is, um, which is basically, first of all, this idea that the gospel of the resurrection of the dead mm. does actually have something to say about how we live our common lives. Mm. And that it does appear to move in the direction of mending rather than allowing things to stay the same. Mm -hmm. Right? We, that we live, um, and I, I think we all know this, that, yeah, and we're certainly thankful for the good things, you know, but we know that we live in a world filled with crosses mm -hmm. on a certain level. Um, mm -hmm. And that the ongoing proliferation of crosses is not a good thing, mm -hmm. right? 
and um, and just picking back up, piggybacking on what we talked about last week, right? That Jesus shows back up with his scars and uh, the nail marks um, uh, is an indication that uh, it's an indication of several things. One, like you said, that the the bad guys don't have the last word, but also that the that the things that happened can't be pushed under the rug mm -hmm. and forgotten. And that part of the redress of that, of the many things we've talked about, whether it's stolen land, whether it's the, the first sin of slavery and racism, uh, what, whether it's the pillaging of the land, um, that these are stories that have to be told mm -hmm. um, and they have to be heard and they have to be held. And we have to allow ourselves um, maybe through hearing them in the presence of one another and God to have a different orientation towards them and to receive he some healing and some mending. And I think the other thing though, to me that, that, that I think we all probably agree with, but it didn't really come up. is just this sense that like, we're still longing and waiting for something that has mm -hmm. to come by God's hand at the end of all things mm -hmm. that like, Everything we say right now about political realities, uh, we know that whatever we do is going to fall short of what we hope for and long for. But that God's return means the righting of all wrongs, the rectifying, right? The turning right side up of a world that's utterly broken. And so I think bringing together politics and resurrection helps us both to have an orientation for how we might go out and engage our world but also gives us a certain kind of um, wisdom as to everything that we can expect even as we're trying to walk and be faithful that we're waiting for something to come towards us from the future that hasn't arrived yet thank you, thank you. michelle thank you for being here thanks for having me thank you christian thank you sarah Thanks, Blue. <laughs> Thanks, Blue. Blue's passed out. Hopefully you aren't. <laughs> we'd love to hear we from you. We put you through your paces this week. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you, though. And, you know, so please feel free to be in touch by social media and or by email with us. Uh, and we hope that we'll all just keep wrestling with this. And what does the gospel and what does the resurrection speak to the political realities uh, of our lives and our world and, and what does it mean if we actually open ourselves up to hear from this God. So take care. This has been a Village production for Colonial Church. Visit us online at www.colonialchurch.org.